0: W.E.R.U. is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to W.E.R.U. FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at W.E.R.U. dot O.R.G. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters is up next.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the first program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about cyber attacks on democracy, social media, fake news, and voter responsibility. We'll talk about cyber attacks on elections, weaponizing, misinformation, social media, hacking, trolls, bots. Is this the new normal? Can democracy survive? We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. We're so pleased joining us by phone today is Kathleen Hall Jamieson. Kathleen is the director of the Annenberg Annenberg Public Policy Center, the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication, the Walter and Lenore Director of the, the, excuse me, The Walter and Leonore director of the university's Annenberg Public Policy Center and program director of the Annenberg Retreat at Sunnylands, uh, Credentials Up the Wazoo. She is the author of the new book, Cyber War How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President, What We Don't Can't and Do Know. Uh, After all that, welcome, Kathleen. So good to be with you. We're delighted to have you. Joining me in the studio today is Jamie McGowan. Jamie is on the faculty at the College of the Atlantic in the government and government and polity. Um, He's the James Russell Wiggins Chair in government and polity. Welcome, Jamie.
2: As always, thanks. The
1: 2016 presidential presidential election is now over two years behind us, but the full ramifications of the involvement of Russian bots, trolls, and hackers is still unfolding. New news is emerging every day, and the consequences of that are still being debated. The full extent of foreign involvement is still emerging. At the same time, whether foreign or domestic, the way in which social media and the anonymity it provides is shaping civil discourse is also a seismic change by itself, and possibly not for the better. We want to talk about the ramifications for all of these trends on civil discourse Can democracy survive? And I think we want to just jump right into it, Kathleen. Can you explain? I mean, we could spend the whole morning just on this one single question, but can you explain some of the important top-line findings from your book? I I think everybody should read it.
3: Thank you. Uh, The book Cyber War uh, has as its main title, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President, and that forecasts the two key arguments. One is that the trolls, which are the imposters pretending they're us in cyberspace, um, moved information into the electorate through social media that was consistent with Donald Trump's objectives, trying to mobilize evangelical Christians who were white, white conservative Catholics, military households, and veterans, tried to demobilize African Americans and Sanders supporters, and those they couldn't demobilize tried to shift to Jill Stein. So the, the first part of that argument says that They're on the same page with the Trump campaign. They could, by the way, have been simply by reading U.S. media. There's enough information in the U.S. media stream to tell you who Trump needs to reach and how to have given him the guidance. But they also had the advantage that the hackers had gotten the Democratic playbook, including the voter turnout models in key states, And as a result, assuming the hackers from Russia shared with the trolls from Russia that information, that would have helped them. What we don't know about all of that social media activity is whether it reached the voters in the three key states. And so my argument there is a tentative argument. And much of the debate publicly has focused on the Russian trolls, the social media intervention. Um, And it is a tentative argument because we don't know, although the media platforms do, whether or not it reached key voters in swing states. Second argument, hackers. There, the evidence is much clearer, because their effect on the media stream, abetted by U.S. reporters, is demonstrable. The media stream increases cr- increases in, in the amount that it has of anti-Clinton content, content Clinton, hostile to Clinton candidacy, dramatically as a result of the hacked content as disseminated by the U.S. media into the American media bloodstream, and in the process... We know that when you change the amount of messaging against a candidate, you're likely to shift votes on the margin. Past shifts that we've seen in earlier elections when there were message imbalances that were much much smaller than this produced effects that are larger than the effects needed to affect 78,000 votes in three key key states. That's what decided the Electoral College. So by changing the media environment, the hacked content created an, an environment in which Those people at the last minute in the last month of the election where early voting was taking place were more likely to see more anti-Clinton content than they otherwise were from the hacking in media streams and in social media where those people were targeted specifically. So those are the two key arguments of the book. The third is Russian disinformation may have affected James Comey, FBI director's decision to make public by virtue of notifying Congress the fact that he'd reopen an investigation into the Clinton server Those are those emails of Hillary Clinton's. as a result of finding some of those on the Anthony Weiner laptop. The argument there says that there was information that that looked as if, presumably looked as if it had been hacked, but in fact was Russian disinformation that Comey believed could be released the same way that the hacked content had been released and would have created the illusion that Loretta Lynch, attorney general, had basically said they weren't going to pursue the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails too far. There's no evidence to believe that Loretta Lynch actually said that, but Comey apparently believed and influenced his decision in July to hold a press conference, a bizarre press conference, that went on and on about how independent the FBI was and then said it wasn't going to charge Hillary Clinton. And if it influenced his decision to go public because he needed to establish the FBI really was independent because of fear that this information, false information, but information that it wasn't might be dropped on the electorate, then I argue that it was plausible as well that that influenced his decision in October to let the Congress, hence the public, know that the investigation had been reopened into the server. As you know, in that final 11 days of the election, nine days of which were dominated by negative headlines about Hillary Clinton because of the reopened server investigation, she dropped substantially in the polls, much more substantially than she needed to lose the Electoral College, and that's the third argument of the book.
1: Wow. It's... um stunning and pretty persuasive. I mean, I guess Comey didn't actually know that that, um, that, that email that he had might have been fabricated. He wasn't oh, sure. Oh, we don't know. Yeah.
3: Uh, we, we don't know because the information is classified. And so the statements by former Director Comey suggest that something about it is accurate, but also that he did not believe that Loretta Lynch had said the thing that is alleged in the supposed content. Um, and the reason we know that she didn't is because the Republicans in Congress have access to the confidential information. He went into closed-door briefings about it. Um, and as a result, if there had been any statement by Loretta Lynch to that to that, you know, effect, you certainly would have read about it in news that she would have been relentlessly pursued by the Republicans. Right. And so the presumption is that that piece of it is inaccurate, but at one point he says that that it's not true to say it's inaccurate. The reference for, for it, the reference that he's talking about, is just unclear. Mm-hmm. And because he's trying to protect classified information, he's being careful about what he says. My presumption is he's trying to protect the methods or the individuals involved in getting that information to the FBI. When the inspector general looked at all of this and issued its report, all of that stayed in a classified appendix. It didn't get into the report itself. So, again, we don't know for sure. Um, but we do have no reason to believe Lynch actually said it. We do have reason to believe that Comey believed it would be, could be released imminently during the campaign and that it might well be believed in a polarized environment. And since we also know independently that he believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected and he believed it when he made the October decision about going public. Um, that you know that that same information, now I'm drawing back the inference from the right. July press conference where he admits it played a factor in it played a role in his decision. that that information, if released after she'd been elected, could have delegitimized her presidency. Hence the inference that it may have played a role in the October decision.
1: Wow. I mean, is it is it accurate to say that our social media networks, Twitter, Google, the big social media companies, and the mainstream media, and the FBI, were inadvertently complicit in using this hacked and Russian information in sort of twisting the election off balance?
3: Well, first, the, the platforms, the social media platforms, were not constructed to take this possibility into account. And so they were uniquely susceptible, in part because they're designed to sell us to advertisers. And what that means is that the ways of targeting us that are built into the structures of the social media made it very easy for those in St. Petersburg to figure out how to get to the people that they wanted to get to. Secondly, the anonymity of the web means that it was easier for them to disguise who they were. And the platforms are now trying to remove so-called inauthentic accounts. They're trying to make sure that you are whom you represent yourself to be on social media. But the anonymity built into them created a vulnerability to this form of sabotage. And then third, because online, we group ourselves into like-minded communities. It meant that once one of us in a like-minded community got some information from the Russian trolls, If the information was well-targeted by virtue of its content being something that we were likely to believe, the likelihood that we would share it with others was high. And we know that once something is being shared inside a social media network, there's a secondary effect. It's not simply an effect that increases the likelihood that you think it's important information, and those message imbalances potentially affect votes, but also... That you're more likely to be talking about and sharing it with your friends offline. And so there's a second effect from that. So the social media platforms were particularly vulnerable. And our system doesn't regulate corporate innovation, doesn't regulate yeah. business innovation because it wants it to happen. So there's not a regulatory structure in place to govern, for example, purchase of political ads on the social media platforms comparable to the regulatory structure in place for broadcast. Some of that has now changed. With the hacking, our reporters were extraordinarily pressured when they were getting two or 3,000 pieces of new information dropped by WikiLeaks from, ultimately, the Russian hack. They had to sort through that in real time with all of the other news going on. Did they make real mistakes in the process? Yes, they did. They did not attribute it to the Russians. They did not attribute it to Julian Assange of WikiLeaks. Neither Putin nor Assange liked Hillary Clinton. Clinton wanted to have Assange prosecuted for misuse of classified information during her time as Secretary of State. And Putin didn't like Hillary Clinton, going back to his allegation that she was responsible for uprisings against him when he was running for election. So also, Putin didn't like Barack Obama, uh, because Barack Obama had implied that Russia was a third world power. So for practical purposes, you had the Putin and Assange identity pretty clear. We knew it was WikiLeaks. That's Assange. We knew as of October 7, 2016, it was the Russians, the intelligence community. communicated. The press lost track of the sourcing when it reported the content. Mm-hmm. It just reported WikiLeaks. So we would interpret things differently if we knew that they were Russian in origin, Russian hack, because among other things we'd ask, we would ask, well, why did they want to defeat Hillary Clinton? Julian Assange, why does he want to defeat Hillary Clinton? The second mistake that they made was in the process of reporting, they did not follow a journalistic norm which says they had not independently confirmed. Mm -hmm. So first, they're saying WikiLeaks, not Russians, or Julian Assange. They're not explaining their motives, potentially, in wanting to oppose Hillary Clinton. But then secondly, they're not saying they haven't independently confirmed the content, which they had not. The Democrats ultimately didn't dispute the content. But they didn't. press didn't know that that was going to happen in the first couple of weeks. And during that time, it's being legitimized by not having that journalistic norm followed. Then some things were taken out of context, in part because they were so pressured. So both on October 9th, the morning of the second debate, and in the second and third debate, October 9th and October, tw- October 19th, you had content from the hacked Hillary Clinton speech segments that Bernie Sanders had been seeking throughout the primaries uh, that had been released through WikiLeaks, taken out of context by the reporters who moved them into news. So reporters took a statement that was about energy transfer in the Western Hemisphere, but started by saying, I favor open trade and open borders, and the rest of the sentence is about energy transfer and reduced it to open trade and open borders. In the second case, they took a sentence that said sometimes you need a public and private position, which was in the context of Steven Spielberg's film about Lincoln and Lincoln's dexterity in moving us through the Civil War Mm -hmm. successfully, and made it into a statement that suggested that Hillary Clinton had said some things in private that disagreed with what she said in public. Well, there's nothing in any of the hacked speech segments that suggested that she gave any assurances to Wall Street banks, for example, that was the theory of Murray Sanders, in private, and that anything she said differed what was in public. So they took the sentence out of context and let it stand in for the belief that she had substantively made statements in private, hypocritically that differed from statements she made in public. Hence, she wasn't forecasting governance. That's taking things out of context. They just weren't being careful, pressured by the moment. Yeah. And then finally, their news judgment was really flawed in some cases. If you go back and look at the hacked stories, stories based on the hacking, and ask how many of them test, take the test of time and successfully stand against it right now. So they say, yes, these are really strong stories. They're newsworthy. They didn't have in place criteria for dealing with private communications not by the candidate. And so when you have an exchange between Jennifer Palmieri, highly placed in the Clinton campaign, and a person who's a friend of hers from outside of the campaign, but that statement does not have any demonstrable effect inside the campaign. The campaign doesn't act in any way that's consistent with it, nor does Hillary Clinton say anything like it or do anything consistent with it. Is that newsworthy? Mm
0: -hmm. Why
3: should that have been news? And so we, we need to ask the press How, when you get private content like that that is not by the candidate or is not talking about what a candidate said or did and is not represented in what they're doing in campaigning or they've done in their biographical past, why is it newsworthy? And those are the four major problems with the press. Were they unwitting accomplices? Yes. Under the pressure of the moment, they made some serious mistakes. And then, Director Comey, I think, was checkmated by the Russians because once the hack content is legitimized by news and none of it is exposed as being inaccurate if the russians were to have dropped something that was inaccurate in our highly polarized environment the likelihood that a large part of the country would have believed it was probably pretty high yeah. and the likelihood the press would have treated uncritically is probably pretty high given the rest of their behavior so i don't think if my theory of what motivated uh FDF director in october is correct that he was wrong i think he was trapped if he didn't act that way and the content were were released i think potentially it could have been used to discredit a hillary clinton presidency
1: wow you're tuned to the democracy forum on weru fm this is ann luther from the league of women voters of maine our topic today is cyber attacks on democracy social media fake news and voter responsibility our guests this morning are kathleen hall jameson director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center, and author of the new book, Cyber War, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President, What We Don't, Can't, and Do Know. And we're also joined by Jamie McGowan, faculty in government and polity at the College of the Atlantic, and James Russell Wiggins, chair in government and polity. Um, Kathleen has been summarizing the findings of her important book. Jamie, What do you make of this? I mean, this was a norm breaking moment in American politics. And, um, you know, partly because that's the social media environment was just prime for something like this to happen. What do you make of it all?
2: Well, I think, I mean, one of the norms that Dr. Jameson was just talking about involving journalistic ethics and journalistic norms and the decision about what to report and how to report it and the idea that the <clears throat> what we might call the mainstream media, the conventional media was pressured given both the, the what was going on outside as well as the time and the, the changing – I think in some respects the changing nature of that business as a whole to make decisions that probably had a, a pretty negative impact on the kind of health of, of, of our public discourse – And I mean, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of questions about the future of what what mainstream media or the large news sources, conventional media is going to look like down the road. But I think we have to accept going forward that they still play a major role and have an influence on our public deliberation. And so, I'm, you know, for me, one of the curious things is about how much self-reflection has taken place, particularly after 2016 in that regard. Because if we talk about social media, and I think we should talk about social media, there's a lot, you know, even today, while we're here today talking that we should we should get into, there has been a lot of out, outcry and, and discussion about how social media, uh, various platforms should be regulated. Um, I think Dr. Jamison's point that they were never intended to, you know, that, that in some respects, this was a vulnerability that had not been thought out and it had never been intended to check and that um, in some ways, those platforms have tried to make some adjustments um, regarding anonymity, regarding foreign corp- foreign contributions, um, regarding trolls, to to try to limit the potential of this happening again. And I think in, in her book, Dr. Jamison makes some of those points as well. The question, though, is about okay. Well, what about on the conventional press side? Have the have the mainstream media reporters in that area had conversations, self reflection, thought about what it would you know what role as as she was just pointing out to what role they played or unwittingly perhaps without you know we can say it wasn't necessarily intentional um, but how that might shape the future of reporting, you know, how even, you know, journalism schools and, you know, classes are taught for a new era of journalists and how they are taught to react to what, I mean, I don't think the idea that, uh, of pressure and, and the quick nature of how news is going to be reported, I mean, that may not change. And so how do they respond to that? I'm kind of curious about that because I know that Dr. Jameson um, as, towards the end of, of her work kind of points out that perhaps there hasn't been as much reflection on that end, as there has been in the social media circles where the businesses, the corporations, have actually made some adjustments. Do you
1: want to comment on that, Kathleen?
3: Yeah, I agree. If you had to say we're now trying to ensure that it doesn't happen again, what can we say about the lessons that have been learned by the players who were potentially at fault um, or played a role in in creating effects, if any, in the 2016 election? The silence of the press is noteworthy and the I would have been really pleased to have seen the kind of self-reflection that occurred after the second Gulf War, after the press recognized that it had you know, unwittingly created the illusion that there was evidence of weapons of mass destruction,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, and, and stepped back and said, basically, we apologize. I mean, we, we recognize we didn't do what we could have done to be skeptical about this in the moment in which we were all very frightened of the country. At least when you heard that, you said they're going to be more vigilant about this happening again. And the major editorial boards across the country have not made statements on behalf of their paper. The directors of the newsrooms have not made statements about what they would have done differently. And it's possible they've had those conversations privately. But I've talked to a lot of reporters um, and asked that question, and haven't heard any of them tell me in response, "Oh yes, we all sat down and said, well, we could have done this better, and here's how we would change." If in a political context, toward the last minute of the campaign, we had large amounts of hacked content dumped on us again.
1: I heard one of the reporters you quoted in your book said something like, you know, I should have done this. I wish I had done that. Um, I made a mistake in this way, but I went for the byline. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's one yeah. reporter's reflection on their own role. It's not an institutional mm-hmm. critique, right?
3: Yeah, that's a New York Times reporter, but the New York Times, as an institution, has not made the statement. Right, has not made a broader statement about. And this this poses some challenges because the norms in place for news have been set up largely to deal with leaked content that the reporter has gotten access to. The reporter knows who the source is. The question is, to what extent should the reporter protect the source? But the reporter has tried to verify that the source is legitimate and the content is authentic before the reporter makes the decision to move forward. And the newsroom has decided whether or not this is newsworthy. Yep. And so we, we, it's not that we haven't dealt with leaks before. and It's not that leaks have not been an important way of holding government accountable. They have been. But this is essentially a form of asymmetric warfare. In which one side is hacked, the other isn't, and the party that is hacked and now is is making the stuff available to the media stream is deploying it strategically. That's not how reporters work. Reporters don't say, ah, the time I could best use this would be right after the Access Hollywood tape was made available. So an hour after that, then I'm going to put the Podesta hacked content out there because I got access. No reporter in the United States would make that kind of decision. Right. WikiLeaks made that decision. It's obviously something that Mueller was looking into and looking at whether Roger Stone played some role in the decision to drop that material into our news stream within an hour of the time that the Access Hollywood story broke.
2: Jamie? Yeah, I mean, I think you could even make the case, and and again, whether or not they've had those conversations privately, or there's more kind of soul searching going on, or that's going to actually shape the way that news is reported. I mean, you can maybe make the case that it's pretty much the same, or in some respects, even in the first several years of the Trump administration, the particular climate that we're in has gotten somewhat worse. And I I want to differentiate, because I do think we're seeing a real, you know, important time for investigative journalism, that is kind of uh, pieces that take time to develop where multiple sourcing is used, where people are getting at times leaked information, I think in the more what we might call traditional way that Dr. Jamison was just talking about. But we still see the kind of hyper competitive nature, and it may just be a function of the industry where the assumption is the moment something comes out, the clock is ticking. And if we don't report it soon, we'll be behind. And therefore, that's viewers and money. The employment, particularly at some of the major cable networks uh, like CNN, um, in particular of, of talking heads, that is so even if the actual quote unquote journalists aren't going to be reporting that story they've got a you know a table with eight different for lack of a better term hacks who might and also you know in general part of the whole infotainment idea you know that at the end of the day um, and maybe this is a, a long term you know product of the 24 hour news cycle and the development of cable news that's been coming since that happened but the notion that you know they're just trying to keep eyes on them and 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 I don't want to call it tabloid journalism because that has a lot of connotations but in some respects it's creating the conditions where you know, it's almost anathema to that kind of detailed investigative reporting. It's more as soon as something comes out, here's the clock ticking. Do we need to get it out there? Do we need to spread it around? And that makes pulling the trigger on those kind of dubious viral stories all the more, you know, challenging. Um, And I'm not sure that's, it doesn't seem like that that's gotten better. That's only one component of what's going on. And I'm sure we have other things that we can probably talk about as well.
1: Well, and how much of this was shocking because of the way it unfolded and the vulnerabilities in our um, social media environment and even in our mainstream media environment. I and mean, how much of it was shocking because of the trolls, the bots, the content, the disinformation, the misinformation, and how much of it was shocking because it was the Russians? I mean, they, they both seem kind of dangerous in a, in their own way, Kathleen.
3: You know, one of the things that I found in, in researching for the book was the Part of the reasons the Russian content in social media was potentially effective was it was largely abstracted from the right wing of the social media sphere in the United States. So the the Russian's language about... 40 to 50% of the content that they put out had some grammatical deficiency. It had some indication, particularly the suppression of the indefinite and definite article, that the people who were writing it were not native English speakers. And those of us who have had students from Russia know that suppression of the indefinite and definite article <laughs> is a cue that the native language is Russian. But the, uh, the evocative content itself, particularly the pictures, were things that were largely already circulating, and the memes, the thematic content that was being attached to it, also had already largely been circulating. So what the Russians were doing was not so much introducing new content as increasing the accessibility and magnifying the impact of content that was already circulating. And part of what that means is that it's very difficult for someone who sees this inside their own social media sphere to be able to identify it as potentially something that is alien or from someplace outside the United States. So is, is it worrisome that as Russian if it was already circulating and all they did was increase the amount of it becomes an important question. Um, It's it's worrisome to me because it means a foreign power is altering an electoral dynamic potentially. Um, But more worrisome than that is the hacking to me um, because that did not occur inside our system. And I don't mean to say that in any way I approve of anything the Russians did, but let me tell you about a first interview that I did um, in the the fall, before I ever started work on this book, was with a friend of mine who's a very smart commentator on one of his, his radio shows, one of his podcasts, in which he asked me the question. He said, you know, you study disinformation. Um, you know, you started factcheck.org with Brooks Jackson. So, it, so, yes, there was a lot of Russian disinformation, but it was largely already out there. Is this problematic? And my first response at that point was to say, no, not really in the usual sense that you'd think problematic, because usually you'd think, well... It must be new information. It must have some strategic interest tied to the Russians that are specifically not already in the media stream. That actually was my first response. So then I thought about it for about two months and realized that that's not the problem. With it. the problem is, by virtue of increasing the amount and targeting it strategically, you could alter the message balance and create effects out of it, which is to say that it's not that I approve of the content. I don't but that that kind of ability to manipulate amount and who is reached by it is what's problematic but imagine that someone inside the US did exactly the same thing they could have produced exactly the same effect whereas if somebody had done the same thing in the United States on the hacking you would have had a very different inference
2: being drawn mhm
1: Jamie, I see you nodding.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I, we were just actually, we were talking about that before um, the, the show today, actually, about the um, the possibility that really, you know, Russia did this particular thing, but when we're specifically talking about the the discourse sabotage idea, right? The, the Not just the hacking, but the, the part about kind of infiltrating these viral networks and systematically exploiting them uh, for a particular aim to distort kind of the democratic process. That could also, you know, it could be from inside the United States next time. I mean, the question is more about how it distorts the, the ability, I mean, the, when, you ask, when you were asking what was shocking, I mean, the funny part is it's kind of hard to say because there was a lot about 2016 that I think some people found were shocking. Um, and so let's differentiate. Um, if you were to ask me, you know, in hindsight or were to say to me, you know, go back into the past and say, hey, we have information that there was a state actor that had engaged in a systematic attempt to do this type of disinformation to have an impact on U.S. elections, it would not shock me that that would be Russia. You know, given particularly the state of U.S.-Russian bilateral relations in the past couple past decade, perhaps. And also, interestingly enough, if you were to ask me, particularly as someone in, you know, who works in this field and has a background in communications, that, that, you know, is it shocking that someone figured out a way to systematically engineer a disinformation campaign using multiple, multiple platforms from a point, you know, abroad in a way that could amplify already distorted messaging and, you know, create this kind of an impact? you know there were theorists particularly in the early days of digital technologies and virtual technologies in the early 90s who were writing about this possibility the asymmetrical warfare and asymmetrical terrorism possibilities of of disinformation campaigns in the new environment that was not as easily bound by space and time and you know people were asking questions what would that look like well we just now saw we know, what that looked
1: like right, yeah right. absolutely so so uh, i'm going to take a uh, another little station break in a minute but i want to ask just this one question before i um before i do that has russia tried to affect u.s elections before in other ways and just didn't have the power of these tools and um you know lots of people suspect that the u.s has tried to meddle in the elections in other countries is there any to that sort of line of thinking?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I teach the Cold War history, so we can start, you know, we don't even have to talk about Russia. If we talk about the Soviet Union, both the United States and the Soviet Union during that period of time, you know, through psy- psyops and other types of disinformation strategies in the U.S., there's the infamous Operation Ajax in Iran in 1953. Um, you know, there are a lot of different ways that happened. The difference, though, is, is that, again, the new digital and virtual media technologies, create a kind of some of the barriers that happened with that before had to do with print and having people on the ground. And so this is a different kind of realm. We're in. And we can talk maybe later after the break about, I, what's
1: about just it. give Kathleen yeah, a absolutely. chance to comment on that. And then I'll go to a break. Yeah, I mean,
3: the, the, the then Soviet Union uh, you know, routinely tried to spread around the world. Um, magnify any dissent within the United States around the world, particularly around the civil rights issue, um, and they trafficked aggressively in the, uh, in the assertion that it was the United States that had fabricated or, or created, um, confected the AIDS virus in order to destroy populations. So it's not that they haven't been out there before engaging in propaganda, some of which had a fact that AIDS, uh, that AIDS rumor was very damaging to the United States. Um, But but the fact that it was deployed in an election in ways that that did not only affect social media, but multiple ways, multiple avenues, potentially, I think that's what's new.
1: What about our uh, interference, the U.S. interfering in other countries' election, Kathleen? Do you know about that? To the
3: extent that the United States was effective, we wouldn't know about it. Ah. The presumption is that the United States does it. And if you look at Vladimir Putin, I actually quote this in the book, uh, because Vladimir Putin does a lot of winking and nodding about this. Um, he pretty strongly implies in an interview with Megyn Kelly, uh, then of NBC, that the United States has been doing this all over the world, including in Russia. Um, and if someone were to intervie- intervene in the United States election, that would be quid
1: pro quo. I see. hmm at this point, I'd like to invite, invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Kathleen Hall Jamison, director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center and author, author of the new book, Cyber War, how Russian hackers and trolls helped elect a president and what we don't, can't, and do know, and also with us, Jamie McCowan, On the faculty in government and polity at College of the Atlantic and the James Russell Wiggins Chair in government and policy at the College of the Atlantic. Our topic today is cyber attacks on democracy, social media, fake news, and voter responsibility. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll free 866 625 9378 or you can call locally 469 0500. We have only one listener line open, so uh, be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please state your question quickly and take your answer off the line so that others can also participate. Don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. It's a we're having a great conversation here. Um, so that I, I want to turn now to like what, what's going to happen next in, to this in the sense that um, the part of the issue that you're raising, Kathleen, and part of the reason why this was effective was the asymmetry of it. Is the solution to try to sort of tamp down the activity that we saw that was inappropriate or damaging, or does it mean that now both sides have to escalate up? Um, We've had a little bit of a taste for this kind of thing here in Maine, and we're seeing some news out of Alabama that maybe similar tactics were used in the Doug Jones campaign. Um, You know, what does the future hold, more lawlessness or more controls? What do you think?
3: Well, the, the social media platforms still lend themselves to what traditionally we called false flag operations, now, pretending you're someone you're not, pretending you're you're on one side when, in fact, you're on the other side. Uh, and to the extent that the platforms can find ways to identify whether the accounts are, in their words, authentic, um, we will minimize some of their capacity to work this way. But it's always been there. It's just easier in a social media world to spread the content widely and to spread it without the kind of media scrutiny that you could more readily get when those operations occurred through broadcast or through print. Across the history of televised political advertising, which I spent much of my career um, looking at, we found instances in which radio was trying to create the illusion that it was really on one side in order to discredit that side, and in one instance, found an instance with something went on television, uh, looking as if it was on behalf of the Anderson campaign, um, but was actually trying to discredit Jimmy Carter, and was not the Anderson campaign. Uh, so I mean, we've we found this before; we just have not found it in, in an environment that lends itself to such quick dissemination with so little oversight in an environment in which it could be so pervasive. So, are we going to see more of it? Yes. Are we going to need to increase the likelihood that the media systems that are set up to provide accountability for misleading content uh, find it? That's the big challenge, at least for us in the scholarly community and the journalistic community. For the platforms, it's finding it to start with, and if it's inauthentic content, unmasking it or blocking it.
1: We have a caller on the line, Star from Trenton. Go ahead, you're on the air.
0: Yeah, hi. Thank you very much for taking my call and for having this uh, show on WERU. This is a very interesting topic. I always like to go to the solutions. I mean, we sort of know, uh, you know, your book uh, expounds very well on uh, the problems and the vulnerabilities with our system. Now, going forward, um, I noticed in your book uh, how you talked about, uh, you know, um, these efforts by, and we'll just say Russia, um, to undermine uh, presidential elections, and uh, this happened in France uh, with Macron, um, but it didn't have the same effect. So, how are we different, and how can we learn from the differences, and maybe enact uh, some sort of watch guard, watchdog, or I don't know what we would enact, but something that would prevent this uh, from happening, you know, in the next election
3: in 2020. The the, the value that we place on the First Amendment um, makes us different from many other countries around the world. Um, I mean, we we protect political speech from government interference. We protect the press from government interference. And I would argue one of the reasons our system has been as resilient as, as it has been is that we have stood strongly behind those First Amendment protections. And when we've let them erode, I think it's been problematic. Um, so the Sedition Act that occurred early in the history of the country, highly problematic. Hmm. But we backed away from those kinds of things because there's a recognition that the open competition of free ideas should, should not be, in, in ways, particularly political ideas, should not be constrained by government. That's a tendency that can be exacerbated into forms of government that we do not want to be. The difference between the United States and France, the hacking occurred in France right before the election. They have a regulatory structure that stood up immediately and said, if you use this and it turns out to be inaccurate, there are penalties. Uh, The press said to itself, and this may have been self-regulation. They may not have been doing it simply because they were told there was a threat. But the press did not then focus on the content of the hacking, but rather the fact of the hacking. And as a result, it didn't produce an effect. There's been a lovely little study that actually looked at that and confirmed that finding. But I wouldn't want to have us put up a regulatory structure in the United States that is in any way government-tied. My hope is that our media systems through voluntary action, we'll set up standards and norms that that they internalize in ways that minimize the likelihood that they play the complicitous role that they inadvertently played in 2016.
2: Here's Jamie. Yeah, I mean, I think and that's particularly hard. I, I think uh, Dr. Jameson was just talking earlier about media, you know, media systems holding themselves accountable for misleading content. And misleading content, uh, you know, is always one of those things that's in the eye of the beholder. And in particular, I think it, it does become troubling. Some of the same people who would have maybe advocated for more regulation of this now that particular who's in the presidency, uh, some of my friends might say, wait a second, no, we don't, we don't want the government actually stepping in to do that. So there is kind of an interesting challenge there, which is how to say we want to protect kind of the networks by through which or the channels through which, you know, our polity actually sit down and, and, and access information and then deliberate about that information and talk about it and share it. Yet at the same time, want to preserve that kind of culture of the free flow of information and debate. I think I'm a little bit, I mean, in reading Dr. Jameson's book, I I, I get the impression that perhaps, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, that um, you're a little less optimistic about some of the thinking that we need to also talk to our own public citizenry. Like, and this starts, and this is a long-term project starting, you know, at the K through 12 education system. And it's not just about, you know, teaching critical media literacy, like only get your media from these places, but more about, you know, encouraging active deliberation and debate at an early age and so that people become more critical consumers holistically or more, you know, thinking broadly about how, you know, what their information sources are, trying to go with that route. So, yes, you know, talking about what we need to do in terms of journalistic ethics, what the platforms need to do, but also uh, – and I say this to people all the time – at the end of the day – somebody still voted for trump and somebody still voted for for clinton and people have to be the, the public themselves in some respects have to be responsible for you, you consumed that and you made your decision based on that and You know, do you – when I hear hear people or you ask people, didn't you look into it? Well, you know, I I didn't really have time to do that. Well, maybe we should just accept that that's the fundamental nature of how folks are. And I think the history of American political campaigning probably suggests that they do. But we also can think about what we can do there to at least mitigate someone. Kathleen?
1: Yeah, go
3: ahead. I think we need to step back and say let's assume that this happened against the Republicans as opposed to the Democrats it would be equally problematic. Let's assume it happened against Gary Johnson or it happened against Jill Stein. It would still be problematic. So, and, and by, by virtue of saying that, we ask the question, what do we want to protect ourselves from? We want to protect ourselves from other people creating structures that potentially lead us to inferences we wouldn't draw if we were more fully informed or if the informational environment were a less polluted environment. And I'm a chronic optimist, but nonetheless, having been working on this area of trying to increase the knowledge of the citizenry over more than 40 years, somewhat pessimistic about our capacities to do it. Nonetheless, we have not stopped. We have a new video game that is out online, no cost, uh, in partnership with iCivics, which which is Justice O'Connor's civics intervention, that is called News Feed Defenders. And it is an attempt to help middle and high school students curate their own websites. That's the structure of the game. Not about politics, but about other issues, such as about health information or education information. On the assumption that if we can teach them basic standards of evaluation of things that come to them over the Internet in the process of deciding what to post on a website that is the structure of the game, we will increase their vigilance over time. We also have spent a great deal of time trying to increase the likelihood that people understand, and we've got videos up online as well as factcheck.org's glossary of sources that we trust, and we created a, a, a series of videos trying to defeat Abraham Lincoln. Um, So we ran a whole ad campaign during 2012 against Abraham Lincoln. In the process of doing that, we were trying to teach high school students how to detect the patterns of deception we were using to defeat Abraham Lincoln. So if you go to a website, part of the Annenberg Public Policy Center called flackcheck.org, F-L-A-C-K, flackcheck.org, you'll see, for example, that we took the Gettysburg Address out of context. And in the process, we show in the ad that Lincoln said that they died in vain. They died Ah, in vain. They died in vain. The point of that exposure to high school students, and this is integrated into history curriculum, is to say there's a pattern of deception. And the assumption is they will try to defend Abraham Lincoln against that deception. But when they see the deception in contemporary politics they'll recognize that when you hear a phrase that's clearly part of a larger sentence and it's echoed and it's put up on the screen, that's probably taken out of context. So we are trying across these kinds of interventions to increase analytic acuity in the hope that over time we can build an understanding of those ways in which we're all vulnerable and build some wariness to reduce reduce our vulnerability.
1: I just want to remind listeners that you can join our conversation now at 866-625-9378. We're talking to Kathleen Hall Jameson from uh, the Annenberg Center and author of the new book Cyber War and Jamie McGowan, who's on faculty at COA. Um, and uh, there's, a, you know, so there's sort of three aspects of this. What can campaigns do to protect themselves? What can voters do to protect themselves? What can we do to protect our systems from incursion? There was a uh, piece in the Brookings from... Lisa Kaplan, who worked on staff to Senator Angus King in the 2018 election, going through a list of recommendations about what campaigns can do to inoculate themselves from this kind of thing. And just on the hope and assumption that the answer is not by a hacker so that you can fight back. Um, uh, you know, Kathleen, what, what's your take on that? What can campaigns do to protect themselves from this kind of an attack?
3: Well, if, if if somebody decides the solution is buy a hacker, we're in so much trouble. <laughs> I know,
1: I know. That's what I'm
3: worried about, though. <laughs> I, I think we ought to say that if... If we know that a campaign bought a hacker, that ought to be disqualifying. Uh, we, we ought to just simply say we've got a clear boundary line here, and there, there's there's no ambiguity on that one. Um, the, we had an, in, in 2018 the chance for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Republican Campaign Committee to both say they would not use hacked content. Um The Democratic Campaign Committee said it wouldn't. The Republican Campaign Committee said it did not intend to. (laughs) I wish the Republicans had gotten rid of that intend word, but nonetheless, the sentiment was a good sentiment. I think we ought to have agreements that are voluntary by organizations that they will not exploit and use. We forget that in 2016 there was hacked content uh, that was used in congressional races. It wasn't just in the presidency. Um, And So the question is, will candidates simply stand up and say, you know, if my opponent is hacked, I'm not going to use the content. I won't use it in my ad, etc. Independent expenditures that support the candidate, independent, independent expenditures base, we ought to say to them, will you say that you won't? I mean, let's, if, if that is stuff isn't used, if it doesn't come into media, it's not going to have an effect. It's got to have a conduit. So I think there are things campaigns can do. And I think to the extent that campaigns also vigilantly police use of things that look like their websites, So they're sure that there there isn't a mirror website pretending it's them. And also make sure that no one supporting them is creating an imposter news site. That is a news site that looks like it's somebody else's identity. Say, for example, factcheck.org. And we've seen that. We've seen campaigns putting up sites that look just like our factcheck.org. And then fact-checking only the other side. But meantime, they're appropriating our logo and our identity. We go after them whenever we find them. But the big, one of the big websites that trafficked disinformation during the last election was abc.com.co. Yeah. it was trying to look like ABC. So campaigns should be policing everything they do to make sure that they're not being mirrored with imposter sites, and that nobody who supports them is putting up an imposter news site.
1: One of our um, so I'd, congressional I'd like to see
3: ca- a kind of code, yeah, that says you know we're. My campaign pledges it will not do any of these things. The other campaign pledges it too. Okay, we've already done something that's valuable.
1: One of our congressional races had one of those um, fake candidate websites that was, you know, put up by the other side. Go ahead, Jane.
2: yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, in fact, I've been thinking a lot more about that idea of, you know, disinformation, you know, imposterism, um, false flag. I think it's just been a matter of time before we, when we could have expected to start seeing that type of thing. And now, you know, also with creative technology, digital technology, video being the way that it is, the kind of concern about deep fakes, the idea that you could get to the point that it would be hard to recognize, you know, because when, you know, humans have this tendency, if they see it in video, it's like, oh, that has to be real because I can see it with my own two eyes, right? That's a colloquialism we have for a reason. And so I can imagine not just authenticity. I mean, the other day I was, I was talking to somebody about blockchain authentication and had this strange idea that maybe, you know, campaigns should be forced to kind of have some authentication so that you could know for certain when a video was actually being disseminated by the campaign, was created by them. And so you could say, this probably does not have any kind of authentication to it. I, I, I do want to make a point, though. It's funny when you are asking about buying a hacker, given the recent rev- revelations about uh, Michael Cohen trying to uh, uh, buy or pay off a strategic information person, I think at Liberty University, to to somehow uh, influence polls online. And I I was laughing about the amount of money they were actually paying uh, to manipulate a couple of online polls. But it, it does kind of get to that point about you know, there's there's something we can obviously call hacking, which is the idea that, you know, you break in and you steal something that is virtual or not, and that information should be private. There are laws that cover it. The kind of ways that I think the, the Angus King campaign were trying to think about also the strategic information of the information sphere and I mean, the strategic manipulation of the infosphere. And one of the things that they did, I can speak just personally from working with students at the at COA, was when they, you know, visited campuses, they were recruiting young people to kind of be, rapid response team so that if something came up on social media through viral networks, they could almost kind of intervene rapidly to prevent it from spreading or to put out a counter message. And so they were actively, they weren't hiring hackers, but they were actively acknowledging the realities of the way that these, you know, disseminated networks are working. And in, instead of trying to ask somebody to take that down because it's false, putting together a group of volunteers that could on a moment's notice be mobilized to actively respond. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things they were moving towards. I think we see other campaigns that are doing that as well. And there's actually analogies to that in the older days of political campaigning, you know, that were more, less virtual.
1: Yeah. Um, And talking about the the pledge not to use hacked information and even the example that you cite from France where the news media reported the hack but not the content of the hack. Um, So like, how does? I mean, we have learned a lot in um, political discourse between the Panama Papers and some other things that the Pentagon Papers, even that were purloined information that actually did have a public interest um, benefit and were reported in the mainstream media. Like, what's the double edge on that sword about not using hacked content and the issue between using it at a, a campaign and using it outside a campaign? Kathleen, what do you think?
3: Well, first, there's a the law. I mean, you, you you can't break into someone's computer and steal things. It's illegal in the United States. So that is different from someone who's inside an institution has access to content and releases the content to a reporter. Um, you know the. whether that is illegal or not, and whether or not the person is culpable or not, depends a lot on the structure of the organization and the regulations that are surrounding it. But it isn't a form of breaking and entering. It's a a form of someone essentially whistleblowing. So we've we've got to make distinctions about what is actually going on. The reason I want to be careful about not condemning leaking is because governments and large entities try aggressively to ensure that we don't have access to information that the public might well need to know in order to make responsible decisions. And it is an important function of those who are ethical inside those structures to try to make sure that news media do have that kind of access and vet it carefully before they use it to make sure that they are not being used and not being deceived. But One of the things I like to remind myself is, because I lived through the Watergate era. I've now reached an age in which most of my students view this the same way they view the Civil War. But I (laughs) I lived through the Watergate era. And, you know, essentially, the break-in at Watergate was the equivalent of hacking now. Mm -hmm. It is breaking and entering. It was trying to bring out information that was potentially problematic information. It was trying to find out what that information was, what was being held in Larry O'Brien's files. And so trying not to normalize the idea that hacking is so pervasive and inevitable that it must be okay is something that I think we ought to to work aggressively to ensure is is attitudinal.
1: I want to just remind our listeners, we're coming to the end of the show, but we would have time for one more call if somebody called right now, and it's 866-625-9378. Um, So we've talked about voluntary agreements among candidates, campaigns, and parties about what they will and won't use. We've talked a little bit about voter responsibility and what voters need to do to prepare themselves to be participants in the democracy. Um, I want to talk just one more moment about what we could demand of our mainstream media, and then if there's time, we can come back to the voter and civic responsibility but what should we as consumers of mainstream media be asking of them as you know like i'm a subscriber what should i be asking of them kathleen i think i think we should
3: expect of our news outlets that they will take responsibility for helping to set an agenda that is not simply the agenda being urged on them by the candidates or by the nation's leaders. Part of what happens when you get hack and released is it tends to take over the news agenda, and it tends to push aside things that actually are far more important for governance. And to the extent that a lot of reporters chased the hacked content, the WikiLeaked content, they weren't doing something else, which is looking at the challenges facing the nation and asking how to create compelling journalism to increase the likelihood that the candidates speak about those issues and act intelligently about them once they are elected. We are spending too much time now kicking the can down the road on problems that they're facing the nation, and those in- those include the need to deal with infrastructure pr- problems, in some case infrastructure crises. The needs to deal with the solvency of social programs, the needs to deal with a ballooning deficit and debt, and the increasing likelihood that the interest payments on it will crowd out things that the country actually needs. So, to the extent that we were focusing on things that were not relevant to governance and focusing on hacked and leaked content that was not relevant to governance and didn't keep those things focal to the electorate, the press did us a disservice.
2: Jamie? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really tough because part of the, what you said is we as consumers. And I think that's the trick right there. Because in some respects, part of what's happening with what we might call conventional media or mainstream media has a lot to do with the financial and economic realities of that particular business. I mean, here in Maine, we've already been recently talking about, you know, newspapers laying off people. And also the fact that it's hard to draw in, you know, good folks at some of the pay salaries. And it's also difficult because, you know, I used to before I came here, I was in another, another university uh, teaching and I worked with one of the local TV stations to do debate prep for political events and you know they had the attitude of well that those topics that you're bringing up are great they're nice it's, it would be great to get at that level of civic discourse or to really get in and on a particular issue but 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 people will change the channel and so that it's it's almost as if at the end of the day there were news directors who are very cognizant of their role in, in the broader role of the media and democratic society but we're worried about the bottom line and I don't know how to answer that
1: we are running out of time Kathleen I want to give you a moment for one last parting comment
3: when we study politics, there are two states we look to for high levels of civic literacy. One is Minnesota. The second is Maine. Thank you, Maine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it going. Um, we are out of time this morning. Um, thank you to our guests, Kathleen Hall Jamison, director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center and author of the new book, Cyber War. How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President, What We Don't, Can't, and Do Know, a very serious scholarly work I recommended to our listeners. And Jamie McCown, Faculty, Government and Polity at the College of the Atlantic, and James Russell Wiggins, Chair in Government and Polity, thank you both for being our guests today. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Thanks to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU, and thanks to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month on a new topic and a new show.
0: Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you.